Hello once again and welcome back to the Common Sense Gospel. I'm Danny Simmons. And I'm Kurt Norbit. And it's part four of the Resurrection series that we are doing. We are considering the opposition. And, and as Kurt and I have discussed this, and really when Kurt was going through and, and preparing all of his thoughts uh, for a class, first of all, I'm not sure exactly when all this began for Kurt, but when, when he was putting all this together, um, a part of this was de- dedicated to the opposing statements that men have come up with concerning the resurrection, trying to deal with the reality that God set forth, and then saying, it can't be true, it can't be true, it can't be true, and so here's what must have happened. And that's really is the extent of most of these. But we do want to give some time to look at the opposition and what they've said about the resurrection. And, and let me just say as we start that this is important for each one of us because it it's good for us to know the truth, to believe in that, obviously, to hold fast to what God has given to us from his from the love of his heart, by the mercy and the grace that he sees fit to to give these things. But the other side is that we don't want anyone to be blindsided by, you know, some thought or concept that someone's kind of looked into. It doesn't take much internet search at all to find a way to argue with a Christian who loves the Lord. And so we want to bring some of these out and then just systematically go through those and deal with those uh, as we look at each one. And that's what we hope to do today. So this is looking at the opposition, the attacks on the resurrection. And it shouldn't surprise us that we're going to run into some pretty fanciful explanations for the empty tomb because the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. And so Satan is going to relentlessly attack it. He's, he's got to try to tear it down in order to destroy faith in people's hearts. And unregenerate man who does not want to hear what the Lord has to say is going to desperately seek any way to deny the resurrection because it has implications for humanity and they are implications that many people would rather not face. So what we're going to look at is some arguments that have been brought forward over the years as an alternative explanation. In other words, it, as Danny said, this can't be true what the Bible's talking about. So here's, here's the way we see it. And really, there's a, there is a fault with all of these explanations. And that is they, they all are based on a prejudicial attitude naturalists or materialists or atheists, whatever you want to call them, those who oppose God and his works, are determined to try to come up with something to explain away what the Bible presents. And they start from the fact that they make up their minds that there can be no such thing as the supernatural. Miracles cannot occur. And so we approach everything from that standpoint. Well, right away, you're prejudicial. You have decided that this is the way things are, and therefore, when I read about this, my explanations are based on my view, on my prejudice. I've, I've eliminated a possible explanation for the empty tomb of Jesus Christ while I'm claiming to try to come up with an explanation for the empty tomb. Right. It, it can be anything but what God says happened. And we're going to see that it, is, it has been anything but. And so th- there are a number of different arguments that have been 
proposed over the years by atheists and skeptics. Um, but I've tried to narrow it down to the most popular ones and the ones we're most likely to hear these days. They're ones that I've heard atheists used uh, in argumentation or in debates. That way, when we hear them, like you said, Danny, we're not going to get blindsided. We won't hear something that will say, oh, man, I never thought of that. That's a pretty good point. And so now what do I do? Maybe Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And a lot of people's faith has been destroyed by people making these assertions. And just our not taking time to think them through, to critically examine these arguments uh, and find out if they're valid or not. So one of the one of the popular ones in the past was called the swoon theory. And it actually comes out of uh, ancient Gnosticism. It's the idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross because God would never let that happen. He wouldn't allow that. Uh, so Jesus just passed out. He swooned. He fainted as a result of everything he'd been through and uh, maybe even went into sort of a semi-coma and just appeared to be dead. Which, right off the bat, is a little hard to accept. In fact, I'll just point out that the first person to refute this idea and reject it was a skeptic himself. Oh, was a wow. fellow skeptic <laughs> nice. who said, nah, this isn't going to work, because it's, it's ludicrous. We need to start asking some questions. Here's an individual who was physically abused to an extreme. He, he was scourged with uh, a cat of nine tails. His back was laid open. He's lost blood. He's lost bodily fluids. He's hung up on a cross. His body pierced with nails. He's horribly thirsty. And then when he does pass out, according to the argument, a Roman soldier stabs him in the side to see if he's really dead. And you don't fool Roman soldiers into believing you're dead. No. They've, they've seen enough to where they know he's dead, but he's not. And, and that's why they stabbed him in the side, to prove he was dead. And if he wasn't, that stab in the side uh, is going to make sure that he is. But we could just also ask, if, if he swooned, and then it gets even more ridiculous because here's this individual who passes out under the burden of all of this punishment and torture. He's stuck in a cold, airless tomb for three days. So now he wakes up and he has the strength to roll the tomb, uh, roll the stone away from the tomb somehow get past the guard at the tomb, stagger <laughs> into the city, knock on the door where his disciples are hiding, and just astonish, him, astonish them with his supposed resurrection appearance. You have this beat-up individual who would be emaciated, almost unrecognizable, on the verge of death, and he's supposed to inspire his disciples to claim, oh, he rose from the dead. I don't think so. No, it would never work. So right away, we've got a problem with the, the swoon theory. And as I mentioned, and 
just to place a name, that skeptic's name was David F. Strauss, who just blew this out of the water. He, he would have readily accepted it being a skeptic if it, had hold, if it could hold any water. But he saw the fallacies in this and just said, no, that's not, that's not good enough. So then another one came along, which actually is one of the most popular ones among skeptics. And that is that it was just a mass hallucination mm. on the part of Jesus' disciples. And they try to put it even in a, a sympathetic and positive light. They don't ridicule the disciples. They'll just say, you know, the disciples were just so emotionally overwrought at the unexpected loss of Jesus. And here they are uh, locked in a room, not knowing what to do next. Uh, and, and they just, they're yearning uh, to have Jesus with them again so much. And, and they're so despondent and so emotionally overwrought that they worked themselves into a state of mind where they thought they saw Jesus again because that they desired that so strongly. And so here was this, this mass hallucination, especially when Paul says that over 500 at once saw Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus. That's mass. They say, oh, that's just a mass hallucination because it can't be the supernatural. Uh, that's not possible. Well, we're, we're overlooking something about hallucinations. A hallucination is basically a waking dream. And we all understand we don't share dreams. Just to, you know, I don't want to disappoint you, Danny, but you were not in my dream last night. Man. But you didn't know that until I just told you because we didn't share dreams. <laughs> Hallucinations and dreams take place in the individual mind. So there is no such thing as a mass hallucination. You don't have 11 disciples or 500 people at one time or, or any group of people who are sharing the same delusion at the same time. Can I, can I offer something just in, in what sure. you're saying? Cause that's absolutely right. We're not all going to wake up having the same dream identical and then agree that, yeah, we were all together and we all saw him. Remember we were there. That's never going to happen. That's not the way that works. But I think if you have one or two of maybe the leading apostles and just, you know, bear with me, but you have one or two of the leading apostles who have some kind of vision, uh, even through that sympathetic, you know, your, your body will do interesting things, mm -hmm. um, uh, mourning and loss and those kind of things. And that, that was really happening for them. So let's say one, two, maybe three of them believe they saw him and it can be very faint. It can be like, I, I thought I saw him back behind those trees. You know, my, sometimes my eyes play tricks on me where I think I saw something I didn't. So let's just say that there was enough of them who thought they saw something or had some type of an experience that it almost becomes like, well, until you see him, you can't be in our group. And mm -hmm. then because that'll that will uh, swing people over into the, hey, I saw him, too. So and I, I think as, as even as I'm saying this to you, I, I'm, I'm thinking I can't read your mind, but you're probably going to. <laughs> they ain't going to die for that. Right. You're not going to die for something you thought you saw. Right. And, and it, you know, you lied about seeing. You're, you're not going to change your life over a phantom vision. No way. That I, you know, I saw a movement in the trees, and I think that was Jesus. Let's go die. Yeah, you're not going to lay your life <laughs> on the line for that. No. And we don't find that asserted. Every apostle confidently states, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we ate with him. All of these resurrection appearances— so 
that doesn't fit that scenario either. Not only that, here you have two or three, let's say the most influential apostles having the kind of, you know, vision or thought that, that you just, uh, that you just promoted. And they convince all the others who didn't see this, that you need to believe this so much that now you can go join us in suffering and dying too. It just... No, uh, thank you. No, Mm -mm. it just, we, we realize that isn't going to happen, but hallucinations are not contagious. Therefore, it's not a valid explanation for having numerous people saying they saw Jesus at different times in different places under different circumstances. So none of that fits. Just, you know, we hallucinated and thought we saw Jesus. Uh, There's too much reality that surrounds the resurrection appearances. Uh, Another argument that was brought up by by skeptics and naturalists, materialists, those who deny any kind of a supernatural explanation, as we mentioned, they just out of hand reject that, so now they're prejudicial, uh, is the embellishment theory. And that is, well, the the story was told uh, of a resurrected Jesus, and, and over time, that story changed and it grew with retelling. And so it just kind of expanded its scope and became more and more majestic until you finally come up with, oh, Jesus actually was raised from the dead and here's how we saw him and, and all of this. And oftentimes what proponents of this view will do is bring up the old telephone game as a way to verify or validate this particular naturalistic argument. What is the old telephone game? Well, it's it's the one we used to play in school, and probably everyone else has it one time or another, where uh, you just line up the kids around the room, and the teacher tells the first kid to pass something along, maybe a little tiny short story or a, a phrase or something. Pass this on quietly to the next kid so no one overhears you, and just have it go through the entire class. And by the time it gets to the end... The naturalist will say, we know what happens. The story's completely changed. Mm -hmm. And so that shows us then that that's what happened with this resurrection story. Well, again, there's some problems with this. If we're going to use the telephone game as an example of this idea, we have to recognize that this game has just one line of transmission. It starts with this kid and goes through the kids in the classroom to the end. Well, the New Testament has numerous lines of transmission. Yeah. You've got all kinds of different people all testifying to the same thing and not just passing it on back and forth to each other. They're giving their own independent testimonies of what I saw. Firsthand, I would happened yep. to me. Yeah, I'm... I'm testifying to this based on my experience. Plus, you can control the outcome of this telephone game. Uh, I remember reading about one teacher that did it in class, and and I can remember we used to do this in class too. You go through the telephone game, and by the time it gets to the last kid, it's different from what you started with, maybe substantially different. So this one teacher said, okay, we're not going to recess Till we get this right. 
Oh. So they started with the first kid, and by the time it got to the last kid, it was just what the first kid had been told. <laughs> so when you're motivated enough, you can even get the telephone game right. So this is an invalid example of what took place. You don't have just one kid passing on to another kid and having the story changed by the time it gets to the end. You've got numerous storytellers, if you will, in the New Testament, and they're all arriving at the same point rather than starting at one point and then diverging. So the embellishment theory uh, kind of falls by the wayside. Mm. Another popular one, and I've heard, for example, Christopher Hitchens use this in a debate. And well, in most of his debates, he loves to bring this up. And it's something you'll hear a lot in college classes. Uh, uh, it's, it's actually still pretty popular today, and that is the idea of dying and rising gods in other religions. In other words, Christianity is not unique in promoting the idea of a dying and rising god. There are other religions who promoted this, and Christianity just kind of copied it under their influence. Um, for example, the Greeks have Adonis. Uh, the Egyptians claim Osiris. Uh, died and rose, and the ancient Babylonians had their god Marduk. And I remember in listening to Chris Hitchens in a debate, he's just rattling off all of these different mythological gods of, you know, they died and rose and died and rose and yada, yada, yada. Um, this argument, though, is a little disingenuous because it's not presented in its entirety. In other words, they like to emphasize the parallels that they see in these mythological, mythological accounts and diminish the differences because they are not exactly parallel. They're not exactly the same example. Uh, for example, if you go back to these ancient gods and the legends that were built up around them, their early accounts are pretty vague on the idea of a resurrection. It's not until after the resurrection of Jesus and his influence that these ancient mythological religions start emphasizing a resurrection. And it took them about a hundred years to start doing that. That's not pointed out, though, when the atheists cite these examples of, see the parallels between all of this stuff and Christianity, so there's nothing unique about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, secondly, there's no evidence for any of these resurrections. Yep. They're just mythological tales. Whereas we see and we've looked at tons of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, one thing, too, that they don't want to point out is that if you read these accounts, they're all linked to the agricultural cycles of the seasons. The gods die but then they come back, fall and spring, mm. and it recurs. That's not so with the resurrection of Jesus. It's a one-time event that had nothing to do with anything as far as seasons or agriculture or anything else. So there, there's no parallel there at all. Uh, 
And most New Testament scholars today will acknowledge that these are not parallel accounts. The differences are just too obvious once you take the time to look at them. And that's the thing. The atheist throws these out there, and people are not familiar with them. And generally, people are not going to take the time to verify it. No way. They're not going to go, oh, I'm going to go read about Adonis and Osiris and Marduk and all these others and, and find out what's going on here. It sounds impressive coming from a scholar. And so the, the average person just thinks, wow, that sounds pretty impressive. Uh, he, this guy knows what he's talking about. And apparently, yeah, there's nothing in, in unique at all about it. He's Jesus. done the research, so I don't have to. That's right. Yeah. He, he's been to, he's educated. He's a pro. He's the scholar, and uh, he knows what he's talking about. But I would just fundamentally point out, remember, all of these arguments are prejudiced because they eliminate possible explanations by declaring them to be impossible. Yeah, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. He knows what he believes or what he refuses to believe, and everything's built, his case is built on that. Right. It's shameful. Yeah, it, it's... You know, if we one thing that concerns me about all these before we go to our last uh, argument, this kind of preys on our weakness now in our society for critical thinking. Hmm. People are just too eager to accept a statement because, well, that guy said it, and he's he's studied this. You know, he's the expert. They've even called him before Congress or had him in court because he's an expert. One thing I've learned is when someone says the experts say, then we're in trouble. It's usually being used for yeah. something. Yeah. Who are these experts? And usually what you find out is that these experts eventually wind up contradicting themselves. Yeah. Or what they say is going to happen doesn't. So, yeah, they may be informed in their field. They've had a lot of education. That doesn't necessarily make them an expert. What we need to do is stop taking statements at face value and say, okay, what's behind this? Where's the validation for this statement or this argument? What's the proof for it? Uh, is the individual presenting all the information or only enough to support his position? And that's usually right. what takes place. That's right. It's just... What supports the narrative is what I'm going to use. All the inconvenient truths, I'm not going to deal with them because that, that's just too distracting. It confuses people. And that's right. Yeah, they may think something else is true. Plus, it would show that my whole argumentation is ridiculous, so I, I'm just can't, not going to deal with can't that. Can't do that. No way. So the final one we can look at is actually the first argument that was ever used, and that is that the, the disciples stole the body. Uh, a variation of this is that someone else stole the body because it's so easy to show that the disciples stealing the body is a ridiculous idea. First of all, they weren't in condition to steal the body. What we're, what we're asked to believe with this argumentation that the disciples stole the body is that this group who had abandoned Jesus to his fate were hiding in fear from the Jewish authorities behind locked doors because they didn't know what was going to happen next. 
decided we're going to get together and overcome a Jew or a, a guard at the tomb to fake something that we don't believe in in the first place. How, how far does that argument get? <laughs> does that sound like a rational argumentation? Is that a, is that a realistic explanation? Is it the best explanation for the facts of the empty tomb? No. Because the, the New Testament tells us they were fearful. They ran from Jesus when he was arrested in the garden. Well, that's why Peter denied Jesus, because they yeah. were overcome with fear. Because they're the one they had followed and said, you know, you're the Christ. We, we love you. We'll, we'll stay with you no matter what. Like you said, they abandoned him. Then he's put to death, and, and their son of God that they had so much faith in is now dead and buried in a tomb that's being guarded by Roman soldiers. These are not the men. And, and who are they anyway? What do we got? Four fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. Um, you know, this is not a group of guys who can put together a, 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 t- a Navy SEAL team to <laughs> yes. go get a dead body. It's like that, that the whole thing is insane. And as you said, the, even the stronger evidence against that claim is that now they have to go out and proclaim that he's raised. Yep. And all of them know where they put the body. Yep. And, and it's just, again, a fundamental point that we've raised several times is why would they be willing to suffer and die for what they taught when they knew it was a lie? That doesn't make you any know, sense. Uh, we're preaching a resurrected Jesus, but in our heart of hearts, we know that we actually stole the body. It's all phony. And, and yet they're willing to suffer a lifetime of abuse over that. And you, just doesn't, you just don't do that. A rational person doesn't do that. I would entertain that if we, you know, we had evidence that the apostles gained much wealth and fame. Because that's why people lie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's for power, wealth, fame, those kind of things. You can tell all kinds of great stories to be on the front page news. And that's the opposite of what happened to them. They, they were oppressed. They were scattered. They were chased. They were put to death. All the apostles, we believe we have, without the scriptural account of all of them, we have some understanding of how each one of them died, and, and they all died a martyr's death in, in horrible ways from, from the historical record that we have. And so, again, you got you to go back and say, why in the world? Especially after, you know, let's say James, he's the first one in Acts 12. Once he's killed by the sword by Herod, if I'm an apostle who ran away from Jesus when he was arrested, then I am not sticking around to see how this plays out. The second time around, it doesn't make sense that they would they would continue to say, Now at this point, they're saying, it doesn't matter what happens to my physical frame because I know that God has saved my soul. That is the only thing. The resurrection is the only thing that would guarantee these men, and they know it wholeheartedly to say, what can man do to me? If God is with me, no one can be against me. That, That is, and so how do you stop a guy like that, which God knows and understands? How do you stop a group of men who know the resurrection is real? The answer is you can't. That's right. You cannot make them say what you want them to say. You can't scare them into stopping and from teaching the word of God because they believe it. So like I said, you know, we've seen um, groups and establishments kind of rise up in power and gain tons of wealth by saying, hey, this is our position and we're, we're here to fight for you. And obviously politicians do it all the time. Yeah. But when they get put into hot water, you know exactly who they are. And these men were put in hot water yep. and they did not change what they were saying. And that's a good point, that when James was executed by Herod, simply for the faith, that did not slow the other apostles down at all. They didn't cower. You know, 
no reaction like you pointed out that took place when Jesus was arrested yeah. and when they were threatened. Uh, you always see boldness in the face of opposition on the part of the apostles after the resurrection. Uh, from the early days when they were brought before the Sanhedrin up through the execution of, of uh, James, and when Paul was threatened with uh, assassination by the Jews and imprisoned by the Romans, it didn't slow them down a bit. They, they continued with boldness to proclaim the truth. Why? Because they knew it was the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. They saw the proof. And they were willing to proclaim it unto death. Yeah. And that is such a great testimony for the fact that it is the truth. If I just go back through these again, because um, I noticed something about them. <clears throat> the only theory that I see here is the swoon theory that, that accepts that he was raised, that he you know came back and showed himself to somebody. That's the only one that accepts that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that would, to me, that would explain the, the apostle's response like, hey, we got something to go on here. You know, he's here. We can show him to people. We can build a case, and again, it would still be very perverted, uh, another fake doctrine. And if that was true, which is what the skeptics want to believe, but all the other ones, the hallucination theory, he means he's still dead. The embellishment theory, he's still dead. The disciples stole the body, still dead. Someone other than the disciples possibly stole the body to keep this thing going, and, and that's how the apostles were convinced that all of them, except for the swoon, shows that he is still dead. There is no resurrection. And that was always the point of this, right? Just that someone says, it can't be true. I won't accept it. So here's what must have happened. And then they offer that idea. But but as you pointed out so well, each one has so many cracks in it. And, and the, the fallacy of man is to say, I'm going to fix this one part of what God said about the resurrection. And they end up missing all the other parts that God has clearly made uh, known to us. And I think the swoon theory is such a good example of that. Just trying to show that, okay, he came out of the tomb, but this is why. It's not that he was raised from the dead. It's because he wasn't dead at all. And just to, like you pointed out, all the, thing, all the things that happened to him where they knew he was dead. We have, uh, what's his name? The, Joseph of Arimathea mm -hmm. and Nicodemus come to Jesus, take the yeah. body down off the cross. They wrap him in grave clothes, and he never mumbles anything to them or says, hey, I don't think I'm dead yet or Nothing happens there, so apparently he's unconscious. He's wrapped in grave clothes. Yeah, and this, somehow this, in his his weakened and emaciated state, he was able to get out of those. Freed himself. Yeah, yeah. So, and Come please on. understand, grave clothes are not a workout uniform. You know, <laughs> th these are not stretchy pants. This yeah. is he is wrapped. Yeah, and he got out of there, and like you said, moved the stone, and then got past the soldiers, all while being half unconscious. Is so all of these are are unbelievably silly. But it also shows, I think the weakness of these statements shows how little the opposition has to work with. Yeah, they have nothing. Uh, in fact, you, you alluded to the, the idea of someone else stole the body because it's so easy to show that the disciples could not have. In fact, even unbelievers will acknowledge that the New T Testament teaches one of the highest ethical standards that we have among in humanity. Sure. Well, if you have these guys stealing the body and then basing everything on, see, the tomb empty, the tomb was empty, he rose from the dead. How do you 
comport their lying and deceiving multitudes with the high ethical standards that they teach. Yeah. You just don't do that. That's right. Uh, not only that, you, it doesn't explain the dramatic transference in their life, that the transformation of their lives that we've talked about in the past, how they went from weak and fearful to, to bold and confident in what they were proclaiming, uh, to change, like Paul, from a persecutor to uh, one of the greatest apostles, James, right. the chief skeptic, to one of the luminaries in the early church. That doesn't answer that. No one will do this for a lie. And in fact, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you see people dying for religions all the time. Well, yeah, people will die for what they believe is true. Right. But they will not die for something they know is false. Yeah. And so the, there's no way that you can, can harmonize the apostles being willing to die while at the same time they knew that it wasn't true. Yeah. If this idea is is correct. Yeah. And you just, I mean, there's so many examples in the New Testament as we read through that if we were thinking about the resurrection, the validity of it and their confidence that it did take place. I think if you, if you look through the, look at the Bible through that lens, that there'll be a lot of doors open for you. I'm thinking about the apostle Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonian church in first Thessalonians, he says, you know, brethren, how we came to you. We were, we came from you from being spitefully treated in Philippi. And he goes on to say in that letter, you yourselves know, brethren, that we worked with our own hands so that we would take nothing from you to be an example to you that you should work if you want to eat, if you want to eat that you should be working. They set that high ethical standard of what people should be that to the highest standard. And he said, I didn't take one penny from any of you. And he wrote the note to them. So it wasn't like he he reported it to the whole world except for them. You know, yeah, right. like, hey, I was good. I didn't see it. He tells them, I didn't take anything from you. You watch me work. He's a tent maker. Mm-hmm. This man is making tents and selling what he can so that he can feed himself while preaching the gospel. And though he had a right to claim some compensation for his work, as he points out in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he never did to show them that there, there's a way for you to live your life. And like you said, to, to set that tone is the opposite of someone says, well, I'm on your side now. Send all your money and you know we'll take care of you. We promise. And yeah. we watch organizations who do that funnel money out in some secret way so they can buy million dollar mansions and pamper themselves to the ninth degree and, and that's how we know that they're lying. They're, it's fake. Right. They're not honest. They've yes. deceived the people. The evidence of where the money goes shows that. And so the, I, I just, I don't, I'm having trouble getting away from that. The, the way they live their lives, and like you pointed out, that high ethical standard, which not only did they uh, bind on others, but they lived it out to say, look, this is what this is what God wants. I don't think, I can't think of another greater evidence than the way those men behaved after yeah. he was raised. Yep. That was part of that transformative experience. There was something powerful in their lives that changed their demeanor completely. They were absolutely convinced Jesus rose from the dead. No question about it, no vagueness, no hesitancy, no, no uncertainty. Uh, they, they proclaimed it in the, in the face of someone ready to kill him. They absolutely did. And we talked about James in the last uh, podcast. James, when he writes his letter, uh, he, he says, my beloved brethren, you know, to, to believers across the world. And that, that includes you and you and me, Kurt, and everyone who's listening who's a believer, that James says, my beloved brethren. He was the Lord's brother, like we pointed out in the last podcast. 
And he never uses that to say, right. I know I'm better than y'all do. I should be in charge here. You know, send your money to me. There's, he he brings all of us in and says, you're, 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 our, you're the brethren of Jesus Christ with me. He, there's no privilege for him. And he doesn't try to take that from for himself. So again, I think even with all these examples we're looking at and the New Testament writings that we see, it is so consistent that it can't be denied even by the greatest of oppositions. That they, they, Like you said, they have to recognize some of this or they're going to lose any hope of all of, of swaying anyone. Mm. In fact, one, one final thing I'll point out is what is shown us just by the existence of all these different arguments. As I said... I, I just picked out some that I think are, are the more common ones these days. There are still several others, and, and people are always trying to come up with some explanation for the empty tomb. But the fact that you have so many of these attempts to explain the empty tomb demonstrates that none of these are reasonable. In other words, if the swoon theory was plausible... You wouldn't have someone coming up with no, no. It was a it was a hallucination. No, no. It, they just embellished the story. No, that's not it. The disciples stole the body. You wouldn't have these recurring attempts to try to explain this event. That's right. What they're admitting is those other ones aren't good enough. They're not holding so, water. So and... mine here's here's one to look at. So they're admitting and showing their desperation just by the fact that unbelievers keep coming up with an alternative, trying to come up with a natural explanation for what happened. Because, of course, dead men don't rise. So we just have to exclude that from, from the very start. Well, that's a problem. Because that is a possible explanation. So, maybe, maybe the people were wrong that that proclaimed the resurrection and claimed they saw the resurrected Jesus. Maybe they were lying. Maybe they were just deluded or fooled by something or, or influenced by very charismatic people or the story just got distorted. Or it might be accurate. How about that? It might you actually have be to true. consider that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the question is, which one of these does the best job of explaining the facts. We know Jesus lived. We know he died. We know the tomb was empty. There is vast consensus on those facts. Now we have to explain the empty tomb. Do these ideas explain it? Are they the best explanation based on the evidence that we have? And we've seen very clearly it doesn't take very much effort at all to show they're sadly wanting yeah. in that area. And really what I'd like to point out is this is evidence of the ABG syndrome. In other words, they're willing to come up with anything but God, the ABG syndrome, to try to explain the empty tomb. Because they understand deep down inside the consequences the implications that the empty tomb has for humanity. And they just are not willing to accept that. Deny it all, including God himself. Yep. I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want God. I hate the idea of God. Whatever it might be, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what 
has forced them, or, well, they weren't forced. They came to these conclusions on their own. But I don't know what motivated individuals like this to be so hateful of God and his ways and what he's done for us. But this is where that leads. If you are opposed to God, you now have to rely on man's wisdom and man's understanding. And by the arguments that we've looked at today, we can see where that takes us. Yeah. So we need to be careful of the anything but God syndrome. Amen. The best explanation for the evidence that we have of the empty tomb is that Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God and God. lives forevermore. Yes, sir. That's right. I, I love that. You know, the opposition, each new explanation doesn't accept the last. That's such a beautiful thing that if someone says, I got it. <laughs> you know, it means they've been listening to the other ones and they could tell that it wasn't valid. So that's, that is really good. And, and, and then we should be um, more confident in understanding that about the, the wisdom of man is so limited. You know, God, God's not worried about what men will come up with. He has shown it to us abundantly clear. Um, we have Bible trivia questions for each other. And uh, I think it's your turn to go first. I, yes, I think, you, you assaulted I, me first last time. So. Assaulted? Yes. Okay. Well, I know the people care about who went first last time, <laughs> probably as much as we do. So we got to get this right. Yes. Um, so you're assaulting me. Is that what I understand? Yes, this is counter assault here. <laughs> okay. Nice. <laughs> now we have fun with this. Trivia. Sweet trivia. My first question for you is. What chapter or what book and chapter contain what we commonly refer to as the Hall of Faith? Oh, that's a good question. The Hall of Faith. Hebrews <laughs> 11. Yes and yes. Good job. Yes, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 just gives us example after example of the great uh, saints of the past, those who lived by faith and what that faith motivated them to do yeah. in obedience to God. It is a beautiful chapter, too. Even the introduction to it is amazing. My first question for you, what were James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, what were they doing when Jesus called them to follow him? Fishing. Can you be more specific? Because you're technically right, but... Uh, uh... I believe they were mending their nets with, there, with yeah, their yeah. father Zebedee. That's right. They yeah. were mending their nets in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Uh, that's Matthew four twenty one and Mark one nineteen. Very good. Yeah, they were fishing. They were fishermen, but yeah, yeah they weren't actually fishing at that moment. They were taking care of their nets. And I think there's something there too. You know, mending the nets to to catch fish, and then Jesus says, "I, I will make I'll you make fishers, you fishers of, men. of men." Yeah, uh, they, they're net and net exactly. menders, and. Uh, that's got to be something to that. Yeah, that's that's a that is so neat though how Jesus shows them a new perspective. I'll make you fishers of men. Yeah, that's, that is awesome, and he certainly did. He certainly did. Okay, my second one then is uh, in John eight. We see Jesus' enemies bringing an adulteress to him and asking him for his judgment. What was his initial initial judgment? Of what they brought before him. What was so, his response? So to they, him? they tell him, the law of Moses says she should be yeah. stoned. Yep. And what do you say? 
Um, his initial, say that again, his initial what? What was his response to them? Okay, because if you said reaction, I would say that he knelt down. Right, but what, what did he wrote say? in the ground. What was his judgment okay. that they asked for? Um, eventually, after they pressed him, he said, uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and we're told in that moment that the oldest, right, left yeah. first and thought, oh, I'm not going to yeah. be me. Yeah. And all the way to the youngest that they all realized, I've, got, I've, sinned, I've committed yep. sin to. I'm not eligible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard people say that they imagine that Jesus, when he's writing in the dirt there, that he's writing their names. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it doesn't tell us yeah, that. But... It'd be cool. We don't know. <laughs> in fact, that's the only time we ever see Jesus writing anything. Yeah. But, in the dirt. Uh, yeah, we don't know what it is he was writing, but, you know. He might have just been jotting down some thoughts, or it could have been something profound. Yeah. Like, you know, okay, here are your names. You well, check off the one who's going to th- throw the first stone. That's right. But yes, that's correct. In John chapter 8, verse 7, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Oh, that's good. And nobody could. Well, you get a gold star for the questions you're asking. Those are just both fantastic. I really like questions I know the answer to. Let's give you that as well. Oh, do you? Yeah. If hmm. I, I mean, because I'm like, oh, that's a great question because I know. Yeah, I see. I, yeah, I get that. You hear what I'm saying? Because like, if, uh, if I don't yeah. know, then I'm like. That's a pretty dumb question. Yeah, huh? why? Who? No one, no one cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> I better stop talking. <laughs> we got all this trivia <laughs> stuff figured out, folks. Yeah, we do. <laughs> all right, last one for yeah. everybody out there in the world. Name the five Books of the law in order. Oh, boy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You got it. What's the next book? Joshua. Oh, man. Yeah, you can't be stumped. That was for bonus. Does that that give me 10 extra points? Absolutely. You got 110 on your test. (laughs) So we talked about the attacks on the resurrection, the, the opposition to the resurrection, and what God has said is entirely and wholly true, and our salvation depends upon it. Uh, that man has done a lot of work um, by the sway of the wicked one to pick it apart, uh, to find it untrue, to lead people elsewhere other than Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And God has not been swayed in any way to, you know, here's one more thing. Don't leave me. You know, he's given us everything we need. And I want to say to some, say something to all of you who are listening today and believing in Jesus, that you have faith in, in God and that Jesus is risen from the dead. The reality of our faith today is that uh, a lot of time has gone by. We're looking at 2,000 years, and everyone who's listening to this podcast is going to say, if they're pressed and if they're asked, did you see it? Have you looked into the tomb? And you know, unless you had a trip to Jerusalem and found the right place, the answer is no. We, we have not looked into the tomb. We, we didn't see it happen. We've not seen the resurrected Jesus. But our faith, I think, even in this time of, of, of the the world that we live in and, and being pushed out so far from this glorious moment when it actually happened that we still hold fast to it, that I think it says a lot about us. Thomas, when the apostle said, we've seen the risen Christ, Thomas says, until I stick my fingers into the holes of his hands and my hand into his side, I will not believe. And, and, and that's important for us who are believers you know, way down the timeline because Jesus, when he comes back into the room the next week, he says, Thomas, Reach your finger here. Look at my hands and, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.